Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Hi guys, my name is Fabs. Obviously, that's not my real name if you're new here. My name is Fabienne, but Fabs is just way easier, so you're welcome to call me really whatever you'd like. I'm fine with it. I've heard all the variations. Um, I get the fun job this morning of kicking off a new series. We've finished our series on distinctives, and we're going to be starting a series today about moments with Jesus. Each week, a different teacher is going to get up here and they're gonna open and unpack for you a moment with Jesus that they find in the Gospels that has been specifically meaningful to them, impactful to them. So I think it's gonna be a really nice, sweet, personal sermon series. And I picked, as soon as I knew we were doing this series, I thought of this moment that we just read about here in Luke 22 between Peter and Jesus. Uh, I knew exactly why I wanted to pick this moment. It's been very impactful to me in my life. Uh, First of all, because I just identify a lot with Peter. Peter is this guy, if you don't know, he's one of the d- disciples, and he's kind of the one that's like, he's just a little like out there. He's, he goes full force, like 120 miles per hour at whatever you put in front of him. He's a very passionate communicator, as you kind of hear, hear in this verse. He's very sure about things. And I think that means that sometimes Peter gets to be a part of like spectacularly wonderful moments because he's like all in. And sometimes when he misses, he doesn't like miss by a little bit. He's like catastrophic failure kind of guy, like a big mess. Um, and I resonate with that deeply. Uh, I'm a passionate communicator. And even as I've like been teaching here more, I've been thinking about why I communicate like I'm so sure about what I'm saying. When sometimes I'm like still processing a thing, still working it out, but I'm just, I just go full force at whatever I think is happening, whatever I think is true. I'm not a person who does things Um, with moderation or a little bit, I kind of go all in. And so I identify with Peter. I also, when I miss, I don't miss by a little bit, right? I make 
big splashes, big messes. Um, and that's what we see Peter do in this section of Scripture. Uh, interesting story. There's four Gospels, right, four different accounts of the life of Jesus, and there's very few stories that make it in all four of them. They're all Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are kind of telling their own account of this experience of, of being a part of the life of Jesus, and they pick out different parts of that to share with us in their accounts. Um, but this story, both parts of it, both the conversation that Jesus has with Peter before he denies him and the denial are both in all four Gospels. I'm sure Peter is really pumped about, about that being on the record so many times in different ways. Let's look at, we've read the Luke version, let's look at the three other accounts of this moment. They all kind of follow the same structure. Um, apart from John here, you can kind of see it in Matthew and Mark, which is Jesus kind of setting it up the way he does in Luke by saying, hey, this is going to be a rough night for everybody. Everybody's going to get scattered. Everybody's going to abandon me. And then we have Peter saying, not on my watch. Even if all fall away, I will not. And then Jesus responding, telling him, he does this in all four accounts. He tells him, here's how it's going to go down. You're actually going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And then we have Peter, you know, Peter being Peter saying, that's not how it's going to go. In fact, I want us to look at how Peter responds in these texts to this suggestion. Very, very extreme, right? A lot of hyperbole, presumably, here. I will lay down my life for you, even if all fall away on account of you. I never will. Peter declared, even if I have to die, I will never disown you. Peter declared, again, in the Mark version, and then I love that in verse 31 of the, the Mark version, Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to disown you. Peter is so sure, he's so confident that he won't do it. Uh, and and these, four, all, these three versions, there's only one thing that's different in our Luke version. In Luke 22, it follows the same structure, but there's one moment with Jesus, one conversation between Jesus and Peter that's only included in the book of Luke. And that's these two verses. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. That's kind of the same part, right? You're all, all the disciples are gonna get tested, get scattered, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. That verse right there, 32, that sneaky little verse that's only in Luke is my moment with Jesus, the moment that's been so impactful in my life. There's so much happening. There's so much information in these verses. I think in these two verses, we get to see Jesus radically redefine and shift our paradigm around faith. What is faith? When is it tested? And what does it look like for faith not to fail? I think Jesus does something in these verses that changes our understanding of that. And then he also offers Peter this beautiful invitation into restoration that we're going to talk a little bit more about in a minute. But let's start with this first part, this shifting of our paradigm around faith, right? You've got Jesus, and he's saying, Satan has, has asked to sift all of you like wheat. Satan wants to test your faith, essentially, right? Satan is going to test your faith. So that's happening on one side. And then it says, but, whenever you see but in anywhere, not just the Bible, it's, in, it's got two phrases on each side of it, and it's presenting them as contradictory. Satan wants to do this, but, on the other hand, I, Jesus, have prayed for you. And what has he prayed for Peter? That your faith will not fail. Right? That's kind of what's going on here. We have sort of this, like, spiritual almost cosmic battle where Satan wants to test the faith of the disciples and Jesus has prayed for Peter that his faith will not fail. I think at first glance, if we read this quickly and we're not like slowing down, we know the story, it can be tempting to think that Satan is gonna tempt Peter to deny Jesus. 
That, that's what they're talking about, that this moment of temptation is going to come, that your faith is going to get tested, and you're going to have this opportunity to either deny Jesus or not. And then Jesus, on the other hand, is praying that your faith will not fail. Right? That's kind of how we tend, I think, to think about faith. Like, uh, I don't know if anyone read Garfield when they were a kid, but I did. And I have this image, as soon as I was reading this, I had this image of Garfield. Sometimes he has, like, this angel version of Garfield and this devil version of Garfield. It's usually about lasagna. And the angel is like... <laughs> Eat the, don't eat the lasagna, and I was like, eat, whatever. And that's kind of, you have this moment of choice. You have Satan testing your faith. Are you going to disown Jesus or not? Are you going to betray him or not? And you get this moment of choice, right? Faith is tested here in the moment before we make choices, and we tend to think of faith as tested that way, and success, faith that doesn't fail, is faith that leads you to make good choices, right? That's how we know our faith didn't fail. We make good choices, it's so tempting to, to read this verse and think of it that way, but if we do, it doesn't make any sense. Satan is asked to test your faith, and I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. If that's a conversation about Peter denying Jesus, then Jesus' prayer didn't work, right? It, it didn't work. And maybe that's possible. Maybe Jesus didn't know what was going to happen. He was praying, but God had another will, except for in the same breath that Jesus says that, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He also says, you're going to deny me three times. He knows Peter's going to deny him. So whatever this conversation about, whatever this testing of faith is and this prayer that your faith will not fail, it's not about the denial. I think it's about what comes after the denial, right? I think, we can go to the next one, that faith is tested in what happens after we mess up. That faith is tested in what happens after we mess up. And, and by tested, uh, it's a tricky word. I don't mean like Jesus is like handing out a quiz. Let's see how you do, Christy. How's your faith holding up? Right? I think it's tested like a material is tested. Like you put like, I, I have to confess, I was one of the people who was watching the Titan situation go down. Um, and so I was like, he should have tested this carbon fiber a lot more to see if it could, with, if you don't know what I'm talking about, everyone's giving me like blank faces submersible, titanic, whatever. When you put an, a thing under the water, you have to test the material to see that it can withstand the pressure. That's what tested means. How much weight can it take? In this moment, after we blow it, after we mess up, all the weight is on our faith. As Christians, all our weight is put on Jesus. Like, I know he forgives. I know he's good. I know he wants to welcome me home. But how sure am I of that? Because now I've put it to the test, right? Now I've blown it. How confident am I? How much weight can I put into this faith in Jesus that he will welcome me home, right? And the faith that we just talked about it a second ago, this paradigm that we had, the Garfield paradigm, I'll call it, where your faith is tested before this moment, that we knew your faith didn't fail if what? If you made a good choice. So how do we know that this faith isn't failing? If, you're, if your faith is tested in the moment after you mess up, what does it look like for your faith to come through for you, for it not to fail. I think Jesus tells us in this verse, right, he, I have no idea where this is in my notes, but <laughs> I know the verse. I, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you've turned back, when you've turned again, is the version I used to read, so I'll probably say that a lot instead of turn back. Turn back, strengthen your brothers. When you turn back. Pray that your faith not fail, and when you've turned back, when, not if, like it's inevitable, like a faith that doesn't fail, like the fruit of Jesus' prayers. He's praying for Peter over and over and over again that his faith will not fail. And the fruit of that is that Peter will turn back to Jesus, that he'll turn again to Jesus. The faith that doesn't fail 
is a faith that turns back to Jesus, right? And we know what that looks like because Jesus tells us that we see it in the life of Peter, right? He says, when, not if, so we know that Peter is going to turn again. So if we just watch Peter's life, if we just follow the rest of it, we'll see what it looks like to turn again. And I think we can do kind of an interesting compare and contrast between Judas and Peter, right? Because both of these guys are in this situation where they mess up in a splashy big way, right? Have you ever thought about the differences between Judas and Peter and how they engage with that night? Right, they both mess up. And I think you, some people might make the argument that maybe what Judas does is worse than what Peter does. I don't see any indication in the Bible that that's the case, right? They both deny, they both betray Jesus. So maybe the turn again thing is that Peter feels really bad. We see that in this text, right? He realizes what he's done and he weeps bitterly in Luke 22. As soon as that rooster crows, he's weeping. So maybe that's part of turning back. But we look at Judas and he also felt that. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. He felt bad. And in fact, he returned the 30 pieces of silver. He wasn't just in it for the money. He didn't want the money anymore. Take it back. But maybe, maybe Judas didn't quite understand what he'd done. Maybe he didn't understand sin. Maybe he didn't know who Jesus was. But it's, it says, I have sinned, he said, for I've betrayed innocent blood. What's the difference? What does it mean to turn back. It can't just be how we feel about our mess up. It can't be whether or not we pay back what we messed up. It can't even be this like, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that you're innocent, Jesus type of thing. There's, there's another piece. There's another distinction between how Peter and Judas react. Peter, we see him in Luke 22. We ha- he has this conversation with Jesus. Then he goes into this denial. And then the next time we see him, it's this situation where the women have gone to the, the tomb. They've gone to the grave, and they found it empty, and they come to the disciples, and they tell them what's going on. They say, Jesus isn't there. And it says, the disciples did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, however, is like, but it's another contradictory. On the other hand, Peter got up and ran to the tomb. He runs to Jesus. Right? And we see the same thing happen again. In John's gospel, there's this moment where Peter, we get to see Peter and Jesus have a reunion. And they're all out fishing on the boat, the disciples, they're hanging out, and then they see this guy on the shoreline, and John is like, oh, you know what, that's Jesus. And it says that, that as, as soon as Peter heard him say that, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer, outer garment around him for it taken off, and he jumped into the water. He couldn't even wait for the boat to come to the shore. Whatever went down for Peter in the darkness and the pain and the shame and the guilt and remorse of all that he'd done, he was running to Jesus. He was clinging to Jesus. And we see Judas, right? We see him feel that same pain and regret. We see him profess his sin and proclaim that Jesus is innocent. And when he does that, the Pharisees say to him, what is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple, gives up the money, and left And then he went away and hanged himself. I don't have a stone to throw. I don't have any criticism for Judas here. I know, I know the darkness of pain and shame. I know how dark it can be in moments when you fail in ways that you never thought you would. It takes a lot of faith in that moment. Your faith is tested with weight that you never thought would be on it. You never imagined you'd have to rely on Jesus this much, right? Grief, pain, regret, shame. None of these things are going to be what drives you back to Jesus. 
we talk in the church sometimes, like if you just could understand how terrible the thing you've done was, like if I could just put a little more shame, a little more guilt, a little more remorse, then that would be enough to drive you home to Jesus. But it's not. It takes faith to go home to Jesus. It takes faith that's tested, that doesn't fail, that drives you back, that turns you back, that takes you home to Jesus. Right, these two guys, Judas and Peter, they'd been with Jesus in his ministry, which means if we flip back a couple of pages in Luke, we'll see that they're sitting there as Jesus tells a story about a father and two sons. He's telling the story about a father, and one of the sons basically denies his father by asking for his inheritance and being done with him and runs off and squanders all that money. The son loses everything. He ends up with nothing. He's sitting in a mud pit, basically starving to death. And sitting there in that mud pit, Jesus is telling the story. He says, that son was like, you know what? I don't have a lot of options here. I think I'm going to go home to my father. I'm not going to presume that I can be a son again. That would be crazy. I'm just going to see maybe if he'll hire me as like a hired hand. I can sleep outside. He'll feed me some. Maybe that's how it will work. And, and he goes home. And the prodigal son doesn't get it. Right? Like if I'm Jesus, never say that in a sermon, and I'm telling this story, I would try to paint a picture of faith that was what I wanted to see from people, like the son in the middle of his mess is like, you know what, my father's amazing. He will provide for me. I know that he'll treat me, he'll forgive me, he'll greet me with a kiss, I know it. But that's not what we see. The faith that doesn't fail is just the faith, just enough to get you home. Sometimes it feels like Jesus is amazing and he loves me and he's going to forgive me and I'm confident of it and I'm sure of it. And sometimes it feels like I don't know where else to go. I'm out of options. And it, it doesn't matter which it is. Both is enough, enough to hold your weight to bring you home, right? The faith that doesn't fail is the faith that's after it's tested in the moment after you've messed up is enough to bring you home to Jesus. And Jesus is praying for us that our faith won't fail. Not that we never mess up, but that we have enough faith to find our way home after we mess up. So when I was very young, uh, just young enough to know that I didn't know I was young, you know, that kind of young where you think you're not young. I was very young. I remember being at this retreat, and I was, I'd been walking with Jesus for a couple of years, and I remember I'd made some choices in those years that, like, I wasn't proud of. They didn't hold up in my church land. I felt bad, guilty, ashamed. And I remember being at this retreat and having this very clear moment. I actually pulled out the journal this week in preparation for this so I could reminisce with the young fabs. And... I wrote in that journal, like, you know, if I am ever going to be less pure, less holy than I am right now, I want you to take me home. I would rather die than dishonor your name, Jesus, in this way again. I would rather die. And I know Fabs, so I know that she meant it. Like Peter, she meant it. She meant those words. And of course, you know the story, as I was writing it, this is like a tremendous foreshadowing, right? The next chapter of my life held what I would call catastrophic failure, not the kind of failure that people in church are like, oh, that's bad, the kind of failure that if I lined people up on the street who didn't know anything about Jesus, didn't care anything about our paradigm of faith, would say that's horrible. I just failed in ways I never thought I would, and I harmed people that I loved so deeply, and it was so painful, so painful, and there was so much darkness, and there was so much shame, and there was so much pain. And I remember I would come into church on a Sunday feeling like, what am I even doing here? And I would stand in worship, and I would imagine this, like, 
giant Grand Canyon space underneath me. It just felt like everything in my life had bottomed out. I was just, everything was done. And I would move my feet in worship, and I would picture putting my feet on Jesus like he was this plank of wood across this cavern, and I would literally shift my feet whenever I felt unstable and tell myself, I'm standing in you, you're my only hope. And sometimes it felt like Jesus is enough, and I can worship, and I trust him, and sometimes it felt like I'm not even sure he's real or there's a plank here, but I'm all in now. (laughs) This is all I have. I'm banking on you, right? And I remember it was a dark, dark two years there, and I remember coming out of it and just feeling so confused, like, what happened? What was that? And I remember looking back to this girl, this little girl who had prayed that prayer so earnestly with all her heart, and I felt so frustrated and confused with God. I meant it. I meant it when I said I would rather go home and be with Jesus than dishonor him in this way. I meant that. And I remember crying out, why did you let my faith fail like so badly? And I found this moment with Jesus and Peter. And I could see the kindness of Jesus before Peter even denies him telling him this. That he said these words out loud that Luke heard them, that Luke wrote them down so that Fabs could hear them, so that Fabs could know when she cries out and says, why did you let my faith fail, that Jesus answers back, it hasn't. Your faith has not failed. You're right here. You're right here with me. We're good. It was such a transitional, pivotal point for me in my relationship with Jesus knowing that faith is tested. Sometimes it is tested in those moments before you make a choice, but in the moments after you blow it and blow it really big, there's so much weight, there's so much pressure. And the faith that doesn't fail is the faith that leads you home. And Jesus was praying for Peter in the same way he was praying for me, in the same way he's praying for you, that you would have enough faith just to come home. And faith, it's, it's not like this leash around our neck that keeps us from ever going anywhere. Right? I, I wish it was. It's not like that. It's like this, this rope or like this piece of string in the middle of a maze in, in the darkness that can help you find your way home. Just enough faith. Just enough faith to get home. That's all you need, right? Faith is often tested after you mess up, and the faith that doesn't fail is faith that leads you home. The last thing I love in this moment is that Jesus offers this invitation to Peter, right? He says, I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, when, not if, strengthen your brothers. Jesus ends this moment. As he's predicting, you're going to deny me three times. You're about to mess up in a big way. Also, just so you know, once you turn back, once your faith doesn't fail, I'm inviting you to strengthen your brothers. We know how the story goes, so we know a little bit more about what Jesus means by that, that he's going to give Peter this position of leading in the church, that he's going to help build the New Testament church. But the dignity in that moment, the dignity in the invitation that Jesus is extending to Peter, I don't think it's about like a position of privilege or power or whatever. I think it's Jesus saying, I'm going to trust you. I, I trust you. I see you. I know you. And I trust you. Right? It's that invitation to try again that is so restorative of dignity. It is one thing to be welcomed back 
home to Jesus. It's another thing for Jesus to look at you in the moment after you've let him down and say, I trust you. That's crazy talk. It's, it's wildness to me. And I think Jesus says it here because he knows the fullness of who Peter is. And in two, two ways that he knows the fullness. The first way is that he's seen him at his worst. I want us to notice that, that Jesus has seen Peter. He's offering this invitation to lead, to strengthen his brothers, not because he thinks Peter's perfect. He's offering it knowing, I just saw you in your weakest moment, and that is when I'm going to offer this to you. I've seen you at your weakest. I know who you are. I know the fullness of who you are, right? I've seen you at your weakest and like literally seen him, right? That's the weird thing about Luke. As I said, in all four gospels, we have the same story of Peter denying Jesus, and the rooster crows three times, and he remembers what Jesus said. But in Luke, again, one really weird little extra tidbit shoved right in the middle, if you can throw that text up. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. This is so weird. Is Luke trying to talk about where they positionally are, like that they're close to each other in proximity, Is Luke trying to imply that Jesus is, like, convicting him? I I don't know. What I know at the very bare minimum is that Jesus saw. Jesus saw Peter at his worst. There's such a difference between me standing here today and telling you about a moment that happened and the people who were there who saw. There's a difference. And you restoring my dignity, telling me that you trust me to to teach or whatever it is you want to trust me to do, and, and the people who were there who saw trusting me, Jesus saw, he was there, he knows the dark corners of Peter, and it's into those dark corners that he says, this version of you, Peter, the version that has this darkness in him, this is the version that I want to trust to strengthen the brothers, right? For some of us, there's this feeling that we're not good enough to lead, that we're not strong enough, that it hasn't been enough days since our last whatever. This is before it even happens, Not only has no time passed, but before it even happens, Jesus is saying, I pray for you, your faith will not fail. And when you've turned again, I'm going to invite you to strengthen your brothers. Jesus says this to Peter because he knows him and he sees him at his worst. He knows the dark corners. And also, he knows that Peter is more than those dark corners, right? He knows that the fullness of who he is, this invitation to me, I hear and it's such a restoration of identity. Like, I know you, I've seen you at your worst, I've seen your dark corners, and also your worst does not define you. It is not the fullness of who you are. I think Jesus is speaking into Peter in this invitation, I'm choosing you to lead, knowing your worst, and also knowing that you are not your worst. Right? There's this thing sometimes we do in the church where we see people's dark corners, the places in themselves that they're not proud of, and we want to encourage them to bring that to Jesus and know that Jesus accepts the fullness of who you are, that all of you is welcome here. But sometimes we like shift the language a little bit and we say, now you know who you truly are. Like this darkness inside of you is who you really are. Now we know it, right? Now we can see this, this suffering came along and it shook you up. And Peter, you thought... You thought you loved Jesus, you thought you were faithful, you thought you cared about him, but now this moment of suffering happened, and now you can see who you truly are. Who you truly are is a person who doesn't love Jesus. That's who you are, Peter. And don't worry about it, because Jesus loves you just as you truly are, just as a person who doesn't love him, and he accepts you just as you are. And we talk like that's grace, like that's the gospel, and I I don't see that here. I see Jesus saying, I've seen your worst corners, and yes, I accept them, and also I know who you are, and I don't define who you are, 
by this moment. Like, I might be the only person in the room who's ever had moments like Peter's moment. I don't think so, but I for sure have. And for me, potentially projecting, for me, one of the worst things was this feeling that everyone around me was going to think everything about me was a lie, that they were going to think I didn't really love Jesus. And I think that was so terrifying because the deepest fear was like, maybe I don't. Maybe I don't know who I am. Maybe I don't really love Jesus. And this moment that was me operating in fear and control and just losing it, that maybe, maybe that's the real Fabs. She doesn't care about Jesus. And there's something in this moment, this invitation to strengthen your brothers, that is Jesus looking at people in those moments and saying, I see your worst and I know it's not who you are. I believe you. I know that you love me. Right? And getting this ready, I was like, am I definitely, I definitely am projecting a little bit. But then I was thinking again about this moment with Jesus and Peter and this invitation to strengthen his brothers. And, and there's a, a place in the Bible where Jesus unpacks what he means by that a little bit more. It's in John. It's that moment after Peter's jumped off the boat and he's swimming to get to Jesus and they're sitting on the shore. And in this moment when, when uh, Jesus is going to invite Peter to, to strengthen his brothers, to feed the sheep, to tend the lambs, he links Peter's love for him and this thing, this calling, this invitation. He links them as if they're somehow connected. Let's look at that little passage. Um, if I can find it anywhere in my notes, it's got to be in here somewhere, guys. When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? The question he asks me, asks Peter is, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep, strengthen your brothers. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, just like Peter denied him three times. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Peter was grieved because Jesus is asking him if it's true that he loves him. And maybe after this failure, after being seen by Jesus in this failure, maybe his deepest fear was that Jesus would think he didn't love him. Or maybe even deeper than that, that maybe he didn't. Maybe he didn't really love Jesus. And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I love that last part. He adds in this, you know everything. It's the only way, it's the way he answers differently this third time. You know everything. He appeals to Jesus' deity. You're God. God as my witness, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Why, if Jesus knows the truth, is he asking Peter this question over and over again? I can hear the pain that it's bringing up for Peter. Like this feeling of just, is, is that moment who I am to you? Does that moment define me? Does everything else, all this love that I had for you, is it gone? Right? And I also see the deep kindness in the way that Jesus does this. This is Jesus. He knows everything he does. He knows the answer to this question. There's some version of this story, right, where Peter was this cocky, confident guy who thought he was invincible, who thought he could do anything, and, and Jesus needed to humble him to show him, this is who you truly are. You're not strong like you think. I know that version of the story. I think I've told that version of the story about my own life. But there's another version here. 
that Peter was so emphatic and he was so confident, not because he was so sure of himself, because he was so sure that he loved Jesus. It was unfathomable, unimaginable that he would deny him. And in this version of the story, that's who Peter really is. And then he does this thing that's fight, flight, freeze, whatever, fear, instinct kicks in. He's afraid for his life, and he does a thing that's so counter to who he is. And now he's sitting on the shore having his first conversation with Jesus that we get to see after that moment. And Jesus is saying, do you love me? Who is Peter? Which one is he? Is he the person who doesn't really love Jesus, and that was revealed in this moment? Or is he the person who really loves Jesus, who didn't act in line with it in a moment? who did something outside of his identity, his true identity in a moment. Peter calls on Jesus as God to testify that the truth is that he loves him. And every time that Jesus responds to that question, when Peter says, yes, I love you, and, and, and Jesus says, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, I hear in that Jesus saying, I know. I believe you. I know who you are. And the kindness in not just him speaking that over Peter, but inviting, asking Peter to speak it over himself. I know who you are, and you know who you are. Strengthen my brothers. Let's go and do this. Build the church. I know who you are, Peter. I, I know you're not perfect. I know the moments of darkness. And I know the fullness of who you are. I know you love me. Let's try again. Let's do this again. That invitation to try again, it's so hard, right? It's the only part in this, Simon, I've prayed for you, faithful not fail, verse, that isn't, like, clearly written. Like, Jesus is like, this is what Satan's doing. Here's what I've already done. Here's what's inevitably going to happen. You're going to turn again. The only part in this whole conversation between Peter and Jesus that isn't guaranteed to happen is this strengthen my brothers. I want to invite you to do this thing. I want you to strengthen your brothers, right? That's the only part that he leaves space for the possibility that it could go a different way. That's why I call it an invitation. You can call it a command if you want. Either way, when we're issued those invitations and those commands, the setup implies that there's some level of are you going to do this or not? And it, I think it takes courage to try again. I think for someone like Peter, who's like splashy and messed up in this big four gospel recorded kind of way, Right, That moment when you jump off the boat and you go and you sit with Jesus, I'm sure there's this temptation to just sit with Jesus and be in anonymity and don't ask me to try again. I, I don't want to let more people down. I don't want to lose again in a big way. I don't want to fail you in a big way. Just let me sit here on the beach with you and let's eat some fish. Right? It takes courage to try again. It takes faith to try again. It takes trust that Jesus knows who you are, that he sees you, and it takes trust that what has happened in your story is not the failure of your faith, it's the evidence of faith that hasn't failed, that's brought you to that beach with Jesus, right? I think for me, sitting here thinking about this this week, it's been a little overwhelming. I, um, in my own moments of terrible choices and people who've seen, I've had no shortage of people who've spoken over to me, spoken over me kind of with good intentions, I think, that the opposite of this, that that I never really loved Jesus, that everything about me was a lie, that I was welcome in the walls of the church, but I'm definitely not trustworthy. I'm definitely not trustworthy with the things of God. And these past few weeks has been like this parade of Jesus 
trusting me with things, the very things I've stewarded badly, the same people I've stewarded badly, the same opportunities I've stewarded badly in the past, just inviting me to try again. I'm gonna try not to lose it. <laughs> it's been really sweet. One example of this has been in our uh, cohort we've been doing on recovering from toxic religion. A bunch of people in this room have met up with Andrew and I on Thursday nights and we've gone to hold space for healing. And this past Thursday I was sitting in there just getting to listen to people process wounds and hurt from the church. And I got off the call and I just couldn't help but feel the like dignity, the kindness in Jesus trusting me with that. I'm a you hear how I talk. I'm a passionate communicator. I'm sure of what I'm saying. I talk like I know what I'm doing. I have had no shortage of moments where I think I've spoken things over people that were harmful or hurtful to them. I know I have done that. And looking back, it feels crazy that, that God would invite me to try again, that he would give me this beautiful church to get to try again, to get to hold space for people who are hurt by people just like me, but it's this beautiful restoring of dignity. It's a way of Jesus telling me that he knows me. The fullness, the worst parts, they're real, they're there. And the other parts, the, the little girl who didn't want to mess up because she was prideful, sure, but because she also loved Jesus, because that was real. And there's something in this story, like I, I think 10 years ago was that moment that I was telling you about when I realized, oh, my faith hasn't failed. It was pivotal. And so that's the moment I planned to like give this sermon on. And then this whole second half, this is a new chapter of my life where I get this opportunity to be a part of a church and to help people come home to Jesus. It's just been such a beautiful gift and I'm very thankful for it. I'm thankful that our faith doesn't fail in those moments when we mess up. I'm thankful that all we have to do is find our way home and that Jesus is waiting there, ready to trust us again, to try again. Um, I know I've said a lot of different things, so I want to give us like a second to just kind of sit underneath and just ask your heart and the spirit of God to help you feel what resonates for you today, like what you need to hear from Jesus today. You can shut your eyes if you want to, if it helps you to listen. Maybe some of you need to hear that your faith hasn't failed. That no matter what you've done and no matter how badly you feel like you've messed up, that you're in the part right now that faith is for. This is it. You can come home anytime. It doesn't matter how long it's been. It doesn't matter what you've done. Maybe some of you need to hear that you're seen. That you don't have to hide those dark corners. That Jesus sees them. And he receives you and welcomes you home and he trusts you and he loves you in the fullness of all the parts that you are. That he's put his spirit within you to help shore up any weaknesses. He hasn't left you to do this alone. Maybe some of you need to hear that despite the parts and places that are in you that are darkness, that those things don't define you. Jesus knows who you are. He's not confused by the darkness. He made you and he knows you. He's inviting you to speak what he knows about you over yourself. And maybe some of you just need to receive that invitation to restoration that maybe Jesus wants to trust you with something that you've stewarded badly with people or with ministry or with work 
or with your gifts or with whatever it is, there's an invitation to try again. Not because you're going to do the same thing or make the same mistakes and not because you're going to do it perfectly. Because you've turned again, you've come home, you've learned a thing or two. And also, you're not perfect and he doesn't need you to be. Will you just sit under all of that for a second and see what resonates? I pray for anyone right now who feels a scrap of unworthiness. I pray for anyone who, like the prodigal son, is planning their speech in their head, that they would feel you run towards them, kiss them, put your ring on their finger, kill the fattened calf, celebrate that the thing that brings you the most joy is not the faith that keeps us from making bad choices, it's the faith that brings us home and there's more joy in heaven for one person who's blown it big who comes home than 99 who never blew it at all. I pray that you make this time mean something to us, to our spirits, to our souls. I pray for your spirit to fill this room in power and might, that we might turn back, that we might turn again to you, and that we might hear your invitation to strengthen those around us. And I pray all this in the name of Jesus. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about The Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to The Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.